ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, great show. I want to thank our two sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. Joining me this week will be Joe Hone, Senior Portfolio Manager at Dimensional Fund Advisors, DFA, who just yesterday, they completed the conversion of four mutual funds into ETFs. And these four funds, these aren't just some afterthought. <laughs> I, I mean, we're talking nearly $30 billion in assets which if you add that to the other three DFA ETFs that were already on the market, DFA is now a top 15 ETF issuer, just like that, in less than seven months after launching their first ETF. So Joe and I are going to talk about those conversions. Uh, we'll discuss DFA's overall approach to the ETF market, their plans moving forward, and then we'll highlight a few of those uh, ETFs as well. Also on the podcast this week, will be Amanda Ribello, head of U.S. Onshore Passive Sales at DWS Group, who they offer the X-Trackers ETFs. And we're going to cover a topic that I would say five, six years ago, it felt like everyone was talking about this. But since that time, it's sort of faded to the background. And that's currency-hedged ETFs, where you can invest in international stocks but hedge out the local currency risk, right? The risk that currencies will fall versus the U.S. dollar, which obviously would negatively impact returns. So we'll discuss why that topic has faded a bit. We'll explain how these ETFs work and also the decision-making around using currency hedging. And then if we have time, we'll briefly touch on investing in China uh, as well. DWS offers the most popular China A-shares ETF. Now, to start this week, I have the one and only ETF maestro, Dave Nodig, on the line with me from Massachusetts. Dave is Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. And we're going rapid fire on a bunch of ETF topics this week, including some pretty interesting questions I sourced from Twitter. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, really excited to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. 
Oh my gosh, it's great to be here, Nate. How's it going? It's going fantastic. And I've got to tell you, I always love this rapid fire format with you because I, I've said this in the past, I've never been able to stump you on an ETF question, <laughs> right? Well, let's hope today's not the day. <laughs> now, you may not always be happy with your answers, but I feel like you always have an answer. I'm always fascinated by them. And so actually this week, I just uh, decided to bring in some extra firepower from Twitter. So we'll see if we can't challenge you a little bit. Okay. Uh, so, so let's do this. I have a couple of questions for you, and then we'll get to those Twitter questions. And first, I want to start with these meme stocks, AMC, GameStop, Wendy's, whoever else you want to toss in there. And I know you've talked a lot about how there appears to be this pool of retail money that's basically moving around the market. It goes from crypto to meme stocks, back to crypto. You call it a, a bolus. And I feel like you were on this early. I see a lot of people talking about this now. Um, can you just explain what you think is going on here? And then we can certainly talk ETF impact. Sure. And, and this is one of those great uh, ideas that's basically impossible to prove. And therefore, I can be wrong and nobody will ever know. Uh, but but fundamentally, I believe that uh, in the course of, say, 2019 and early 2020, uh, a lot of folks made a bunch of money in crypto. I think that's really the source of this new capital, if you will. Um, now, you know, capital is sort of not really created and destroyed in the way people think about it, because obviously at any given moment, one trade sets a price and then everybody who owns a thing sort of notionally benefits from that price. And that's what we've seen over and over again in things like GME and AMC, a lot of trading happening on a few shares, meaning that there are a lot of shares that are just sitting there locked in, say, big ETFs and institutions, but a small number of shares trading a lot setting prices higher, which creates this implied capital for, say, AMC stock when it's on one of these runs. Um, now, the back of the envelope math I've been able to do is that it's something in the range of, I don't know, between 15 and $30 billion uh, that sort of seems to be moving between the crypto notional economy that is being directly in Ether or Bitcoin or wrapped in some sort of degenerate crypto yield farming scheme or whatever, uh, and then moves back into the securitized economy and then plays around in the securitized economy, moving between, say, you know, Tesla and GME and AMC and probably some ETFs in the mix, too. Uh, and, and if you think about it from that perspective, uh, really, there's only a handful of securities that are getting this treatment at any given point in time. I think it's relatively easy to figure out what they are and avoid them. And that's probably what most investors should do. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, it seems like a lot of them are these uh, circa 1990s stocks. W what do you think is the attraction here? Like, is this a, a sentimental thing or do you think it's driven simply by the level of short interest, uh, re retail investors just wanting to stick it to the man, so to speak? I actually think there's a level of irony here that people don't really appreciate, right? I mean, much like you can look at punk rock and divide it into sort of ironic punk rock, like the Ramones and sort of serious punk rock, like, like I don't know, Black Flag. I, I feel like investing has become that way as well. I think that while, yes, there are certainly viable business cases for stocks like uh, AMC and GME, I think it's difficult to create the viable business case for Dogecoin, right? But they're all being treated the same way, which with which is a bit tongue-in-cheek and with a sense of irony. Uh, and while it's easy to snicker about that, I think we also need to point out this is real money involved, right? And so while some people may be smiling, uh, we all know that every trade has two sides. And therefore, on the end of every one of those ironic Dogecoin smiles is somebody who is not very happy. 
do you view this situation as any sort of a market structure problem? Just the fact that retail investors can band together like this, push stocks around, does that concern you at all? No, not really. I mean, I think the ability for investors to swarm illiquid assets is something that exists in every market. Traditionally, it's been hedge funds that have played this game. Uh, and we've seen this in countless markets, right? The commodities markets used to be really rife with this kind of thing. We all know about corners that people used to put in or could still potentially put into things like less liquid futures. I mean, this is part of the market that there are pools of capital that can come in and disrupt what we would think of as the normal course of business, the normal price discovery mechanism. The fact that this is now being organized, you know, effectively through memes and based on cultural influence, as opposed to, uh, you know, four or five hedge funds that get together and decide to beat up on a stock. I, I don't see that as necessarily a structural risk, if anything, and maybe it's a little bit of payback. From an ETF investor standpoint, if we look at AMC, for example, this became a huge holding in two ETFs, right? The uh, SoFi 50 ETF, ticker SFYF, and the Invesco Dynamic Leisure and Entertainment ETF, ticker PEJ, which, uh, interestingly, PEJ, they just rebalanced out of AMC. Uh, but is there anything that you think ETF investors should be worried about or doing differently, given that we have this pool of money moving around the market? Well, you know, one of the great things about ETFs is it's relatively straightforward with most of them to know exactly what you own. Um, so anytime you see any single stock headline that really makes your eyebrows pop, a bankruptcy, something that's run incredibly well, something like that, it's totally reasonable to take a quick glance at your portfolio and see what your exposure is. Um, you know, in, in the case that you're mentioning, and you know, I, I don't think anybody sort of accidentally stuck into the leisure and entertainment industry, right? That's a very specific trade somebody put on. I'm going to guess they probably understood that they had AMC in that portfolio when you bought PEJ. Uh, but it's worth taking a look at your portfolio anytime you see a big move like this, just to understand what your exposure is. I don't think it's particularly concerning. Um, you know, I think, yes, this is part of what has made things like the Russell 2000 run because these are smaller cap stocks. Uh, but this is not what is driving the market. All right. I have one other uh, quick unrelated topic before we get to the Twitter questions. And you and I have talked about this in the past, which is why I wanted to ask you about it now. And that's the Fed is apparently mm -hmm. exiting their bond ETF holdings. So some $8.6 billion in ETFs they bought last year to help stabilize the bond market. The, the question I have for you is, are you surprised that they're not holding on to these longer? Because I feel like I remember you saying, you know, maybe they'll just sit on these indefinitely. So are you surprised they're exiting already? Um, a, a little bit. Um, but I think the important thing to put is to put this in context, right? So yes, they bought $8 billion roughly of ETFs right at the bottom of the market last year, or at least they signaled they were going to buy at the bottom of the market. By the time the actual purchases happened, the bond market had nicely recovered from the March shenanigans. But the important thing is there was another $200 billion that was bought by regular folks like us, right? So it was a big year for bond ETFs. $200 billion is a big number. The fact that the Fed was, you know, 5% you know, of that buying, uh, I don't see as being particularly relevant in terms of actual market structure and pricing. So the Fed moving out of that $8 billion on an average Tuesday probably would have a very de minimis impact on today's market, which is trading very healthily. Thank you very much. So I'm not particularly concerned about it. I had suspected they might just hang on to this for like another year, sort of let people forget about it. Um, but, you know, if you look across all of those sort of emergency Fed programs, they're pretty much winding all of them down. 
that's good, right? None of them are particularly necessary anymore. I don't think we need a, you know, a 10-year unwind. Uh, I don't think we need a TARP-like response to this. This was a very tactical set of moves the Fed made at a very particular point in time. They did their job. It had the effect it needed to, and it's time to unwind it. I get it. But just to be clear, in terms of potential ETF impact of the Fed selling, it sounds like you think these positions are just way too small to matter. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about things like, you know, a couple hundred million dollar position in JNK, things like that. It's spread out across a fairly large group of ETFs. They're all extraordinarily liquid. That's part of how they ended up in that pool in the first place. Um, so I think the incremental selling of 10, 20, 50 million dollars here and there on those ETFs, uh, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact. Obviously, if you're the ETF issuer of any of those, you'd rather have the Fed hold on to it forever. <laughs> uh, but I don't think we're going to somehow see a panic in the corporate bond market because the Fed gets out of these fairly tiny positions. All right. With our remaining time here, let's get to some of these Twitter questions. And, and by the way, thank you to everyone who submitted these. Uh, we probably won't get to all of them, but we'll definitely try to cover as many as we can. So, Dave, uh, we'll, we'll have to go quick here. The first one comes from at Dilks J. And he asks, if both of you were going on a 20-year Mars mission and you had to pick one ETF for your current retirement savings but couldn't sell one share for 20 years, what would the ETF choice be and why? So, so oh, Dave, what would you pick? You going first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I guess the easy answer for me is always uh, VT, the Vanguard yeah. Total World Stock <laughs> ETF, right? Because what does that cover? Like 98% of the world's market cap, eight yeah. basis points. I guess if I had to go a little bit out on the limb, um, I, I'd probably go with uh, QQQJ, the Invesco NASDAQ Next Gen 100 ETF. And I, well, here, here's my rationale is that, those companies are next in line for the NASDAQ, uh, NASDAQ 100. So if I'm thinking over a 20-year period, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to get some pop from both that you know, mid or smaller cap tilt and then hopefully the higher growth potential. Uh, so I, I guess that, that'd be the next one that comes to mind if we're, if we're trying to get a little creative here. Yeah, so for mine, I would say VT. I mean, it's just it's too easy an answer it is. to just go with VT, right? I mean, it is the ultimate fire and forget fund. I guess if I was going to be a little bit more clever, what I would probably do is pick something that was going to give me a little bit of um, that sort of compression and com and convexity. Um, so something like SPY-C from Simplify, I know I talk about that product too much, um, but the idea that you can sort of get the core equity exposure but have the opportunity to both uh, profit from the upside and downside during tail events. That strikes me as kind of what you want in the longest term view, right? You want to make sure that you have an opportunity to do something really interesting if the market goes up to 30% in a year, it has one of those blowout years. Um, so I like the idea of adding some level of option uh, layer onto those kind, kinds of things. And the way Spicy does is probably the one I'd pick. But honestly, VT is probably the better. No, I like that. And I should note with the QQQJ pick, I mean, look, if you look where valuations are at right now, maybe not the best starting point to, to get in for 20 years, but That's it is 20, 20 years. a long time. It is. Know? And by the way, as always, we're just having fun here. These aren't uh, recommendations. Do your own homework. Um, okay, okay, Dave, the uh, next question comes from at Mike Policar NGP. And he has a great question from an ETF education standpoint. So he says, my understanding is that some ETFs distribute gains, but most don't. What makes an ETF have to distribute gains and how can investors and advisors prepare or inform themselves or their clients? And of course, we could 
literally spend an entire show on this, but I, I guess from your perspective, what's the Cliff Notes version, especially as it relates to just being properly informed about cap gain distributions? Yeah, so so really we're just talking about capital gains here, and, and really this is just first principles. Think about how capital gains end up in a portfolio on the balance sheet, as it were. Um, and it is that you have to have sold something that is at a gain from where you bought it, and then you have to report, and then in a case of a mutual fund, distribute that capital gain. Uh, the reason some funds do that and some funds don't is really twofold. Uh, if you're running a very low turnover strategy, like say an S&P 500 index fund, you're just not going to be doing a lot of selling, period. Really, except for rebalances, you're never going to be selling anything unless there's an index reconstitution. So that's mm. point one. Index-based products tend not to generate capital gains in any case. But then you add in the ETF structure, which allows you to, instead of taking a gain, all right, you never have to sell to meet a redemption. You just hand off shares at a low basis, and then you somebody else goes and sells them. That means the gains happen on somebody else's books, not the ETF's books. That's really the critical tax advantage feature of ETF. So you put those two things together, and you understand why most ETFs really just don't ever have to make a capital gains distribution. And what about just staying on top of these? I mean, I always go to the issuer website. Do you think that's the best method, just in terms of staying informed of the, the few ETFs that do distribute cap gains? Yeah, so really, for, for things that are going to distribute, oddly, what you're really going to be looking for is fixed income products, right? Fixed income products with fixed maturities, like I'm in a five to seven year treasury fund. Well, as that treasury becomes a four year, 11 months and however many days, uh, you know, treasury, uh, it has to be sold. That generates a gain. It's often, you don't know, have the in and out flow in order to be able to push those bonds out to somebody in a redemption. That's really where you need to be the most cautious. Or if you're in a very active strategy with very high turnover and not a lot of trading, that would be the other sort of sweet spot. Honestly, there you probably need to look at some of the more actively managed uh, long-term funds, not the name above the title, go-go growth funds like ARKK, but maybe some of the products from some of the newer issuers. Those are the ones I'd be really looking at and making sure that you understand whether gains are coming. And yeah, the ETF issuer website, almost always the best place to get that data first. Okay, so this is perfect because a somewhat related question comes from Jake, so at Economic, who, by the way, is one of my favorite. Uh, tw yeah, great yeah. on Twitter. But he asked, why is there no plain vanilla U.S. 6040 ETF? And I'll add a little bit of color here just based on some past comments I've seen from him. And obviously, this gets back into ETF tax efficiency. But I think what he's saying is, why wouldn't an issuer offer this so they could just easily rebalance the portfolio in a tax efficient manner? And I think Jake would actually prefer that the ETF holds, say, 40 percent in muni bonds as well to sort of amplify the overall tax benefits. But why do you think this ETF doesn't exist? Um, well, you know, we used to have more funds like this. We used to have a, have a fairly robust group of target date funds, of asset allocation funds. And the short answer is because the growth of the ETF industry has been predominantly advisor driven, there's no market for it, right? If you're an advisor, the last thing you're going to do is stick your, your client in a fund that's going to do all the rebalancing for them. Not only is it narrative suicide, but it also implies that you haven't done enough thinking to, to create a portfolio that's a little more interesting than that for your client based on their needs and their desires. So uh, those types of products really never make sense in an advisory context, and that's where all the money came from over the last 20 years. Now that we're in a little bit more of a retail market, I can see the case for it, but instead, what we've seen is the rise of robo-platforms, right? Mm. They really solve this problem for most advisors, uh, most investors that don't have an advisor. Um, yes, there is some money in those types of mutual funds. Uh, however, most of that is legacy money or it's trapped in 401ks. 
All right, we have time for one more question, and I want to go with this one from at Serge Lova. And his question is, what will make ETF successful in the future, specifically those that will be launched by large asset managers, so i.e. DFA, American Funds, et cetera. And this will be a perfect segue because I'll be joined here momentarily by uh, DFA's Joe Hone, who, of course, yesterday they, they completed this conversion of four mutual funds into ETFs, right, nearly $30 billion in assets. But what do you think the recipe for success is for active funds, especially from larger fund companies? Uh, you know, I, uh, unfortunately, the answer is going to be performance, right? I, I think the, the, the challenge for an active traditional manager coming into the ETF space is the ETF consumers are pretty smart, right? I mean, part of the – if you've been an ETF-focused advisor, say, for the last 10 years – you understand things like alpha. You understand sharp ratios. You understand how to analyze whether or not an active product is right versus a passive product for a given cost point. That's your job. So I think one of the things that we need to be careful of is while, yes, we're going to see a lot of active managers show up in the ETF industry, whether or not they're successful ultimately is going to come down to whether or not they deliver value for investors and advisors. Um, now, in the case of DFA, I'm not particularly worried about that, right? They've been delivering value for a long time to a lot of investors. And for, for us, you know, plebes that aren't on the DFA platform, this is an opportunity to get access to products that historically have really been gated. So I think it's really interesting to see them show up, but it's going to end up being performance. That's just the truth. Well, Dave, always a lot of fun. I, I really like doing these Twitter questions. I think we'll have to do this again. Yeah, but, let's do it again. Uh, as always, thank you for joining me. And thanks for having me. That was ETF Trends, Dave Nottig. My next guest is Joe Hone, Senior Portfolio Manager at Dimensional Fund Advisors, who just yesterday, they completed the conversion of four mutual funds into ETFs. They now offer seven ETFs altogether, over $30 billion in assets. And just like that, DFA has vaulted into the top 15 of ETF issuers, which is remarkable, just given that their first ETF didn't launch until mid-November of last year. Uh, Joe is now on the line with me from Austin, Texas. Joe, thanks for joining me this week. Yeah, happy to be here, Nate. So look, obviously an exciting time at DFA. Uh, there's a lot I want to ask you. But I have to start with the fact that even before these conversions, the three existing DFA ETFs on the market had already taken in over a billion dollars in new assets this year, uh, over one and a half billion dollars in total assets since launching, which means investors are clearly responding to uh, DFA entering the market. The question I have for you is, what took so long for DFA to join the ETF party? Yeah, that's a great question and a question that we've gotten quite a bit. And I'd say there are, there are two things that we need in order to uh, enter a market or launch a product. The first one is client demand. And honestly, we, we're a newer ETF issuer, but we've been sub-advising ETFs for almost six years now. So we, we've been in this space for a while. I have a lot of expertise. But what we, we uh, five or six years ago, our clients weren't asking us to launch ETFs. Fast forward a few years, and now they're really screaming from the rooftops for us to launch ETFs. And so we heard that. Uh, the other thing that we needed was the ability to manage ETFs in the way that we wanted. 
And until the SEC rule that came out, I believe it was the summer of, of 2019, Correct. Uh, that really changed the rules in how ETFs are, are launched and managed. We really didn't feel like we could fully manage an ETF the way that we wanted to. And between those two things uh, happening, we looked at it and we said, now is the time. Now is absolutely the time for us to go out and launch ETFs. Well, you may have seen this because I heard through the grapevine this made its way around the uh, DFA headquarters. So I said at the beginning of the year that DFA arriving late to ETFs is like Brad Pitt walking through the door of an Oscars after party at like one in the morning. And my point was obviously that for DFA, it doesn't matter that you're late to the party, right? You're, you're still the center of attention. I feel like the DFA brand and reputation that's been built over the years obviously translates here. And frankly, I still think we're, we're early in ETFs overall. Uh, but, but look, let's take this in several pieces. We'll, we'll get to the conversions in a moment. Let's start with the three ETFs that did launch towards the end of last year. So these are three low-cost, uh, core building block ETFs. There's the U.S. Core Equity Market ETF, ticker DFAU, the International Core Equity Market ETF, ticker DFAI, and then the Emerging Core Equity Market ETF, DFAE. What was the idea behind these three being the first out of the gate? Yeah, it it was a a good first start in that we're covering a lot of bases for our clients, right? It's a lot of clients will want to use a core kind of satellite approach or just a core approach. We're going to be covering that core uh, need in their asset allocation across the globe with these three products. And so we're just covering a whole lot of bases with it. The other thing internally, what this forced us to do is to build out, build out our infrastructure to manage ETFs in an active way across the globe, because there are differences in how you manage ETFs from the U.S. to international and certainly to emerging markets. So it was a good kind of uh, first way, not for us to really dip our toe in, but fully jump in to the waters. And now that we, we were able to overcome that and build out the machinery that we needed in, internal to the firm, we're good to go across the globe, and we're very happy about that. And do you want to briefly describe the overall investment approach for these three ETFs? Because to me, I, I think they all really speak to the investment DNA of dimensional funds. For sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really taking uh, the, what we've done for decades, for four plus decades here at DFA, and, and built them into an active ETF approach. All we're doing is we're looking at the markets and we're saying there are some securities that have higher expected returns, some securities that have lower expected returns. We're going to buy them all. We're just going to overweight the ones that we think are going to outperform and underweight the ones that we think are going to underperform. And that's what we're doing in these products. We are buying the entire asset class that we're we're talking about in each of the three. And then we are tilting the portfolios towards deeper value securities, smaller cap securities, and higher profitability securities. Okay, so now let's talk about these four mutual funds that converted yesterday. Uh, These were converted into transparent active ETF wrappers. The four funds were all, uh, quote-unquote, tax-managed funds. Why were these selected for the conversion? Yeah, you kind of touched on it there. The fact that these were tax-managed is that we we have, uh, in our investment uh, approach for these funds, we worry about after-tax returns. And so taking a fund that has that concern, that consideration, and moving it over to an ETF structure versus a mutual fund structure just gives me as a portfolio manager a lot of additional tools in my toolbox that I have to manage uh, that after-tax return for our clients. And so these were just perfect ones. Um, they, they were you know, just U.S. exposed right now, so that's a little bit easier, far fewer jurisdictions for us to, to go and chat with on the legal side. And so it worked out really well for us to uh, – 
have these four be the first ones to, to convert over. And by the way, I do want to mention for listeners, if you'd like to better understand the uh, underlying mechanics of mutual fund to ETF conversions, I covered that in pretty good detail back on May 18th. So would highly encourage you to check that out if you missed it. I, I only mention that because Joe and I aren't going to get into the weeds of the actual conversion process today. But, but Joe, I guess that said, I mean, was there anything in particular that you would note regarding the conversion process? Did anything stand out to you in going through that? Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, a conversion process is more of an exercise for our legal and middle and back office folks. And our our legal uh, operations folks just really busted their butts in doing this conversion. So it was a lot of work for them. For me as a portfolio manager, I was just excited to get these tools that I have as an ETF manager. So these fork funds that just converted over, they've had historically tax efficiency ratios that have rivaled that of uh, ETFs, which are supposedly more tax-efficient uh, vehicles, as mutual funds. And now that these are ETFs going forward, we, we really think that we're going to be able to make those um, tax-efficiency ratios only get better. Um, I look at that, that, that set of tools that I have in my toolbox, and when you think of ETFs, what happens is, is you have a create-and-redeem mechanism. And instead of seeing cash move in and out of your fund in a mutual fund, I see stock move in and out of my fund. What we do with these ETFs is we're able to, when I see stock move into my fund, I have a basket of securities that I want to increase weight in, right? And when I see redeems and I see stock move out of my fund, I have a basket of stock of securities that I want to decrease weight in. And so the, the ETF rule that we talked about a little bit earlier is really a match made in heaven when it comes to the way that we manage products here at DFA. It gives us that flexibility to just organically be able to do some of the turnover that we want to do in our funds just via this this client-induced uh, create-redeem mechanism that happens. In addition to that, tax efficiency um, as part of this conversion. I, I noticed that the management fee for all of these funds was reduced and, and fairly substantially. I think a, a 10 basis point reduction on three of the funds. Is that simply because the back end operating costs of ETFs is lower? It, it's really kind of broadly us looking at ourselves as a firm and looking at and seeing that we're, we're more efficient than we used to be. And as we become more efficient as a firm on the whole, we'd like to give those cost savings back to our clients. And we've done that historically. This isn't the first time we've, we've lowered fees. We've historically lowered fees over the years. And I don't think necessarily the change from these being a mutual fund to an ETF was the impetus for us to lower the fees. It's more so just that we are getting more efficient overall as, a, uh, as an investment manager. And by the way, I should have mentioned the four ETFs. So the four ETFs are the Dimensional U.S. Equity ETF, ticker DFUS, Dimensional U.S. Core Equity 2 ETF, ticker DFAC, Dimensional U.S. Small Cap ETF, DFAS, and the Dimensional U.S. Targeted Value ETF, DFAT. Um, Joe, one question I have for you, especially given your role as a portfolio manager, if we take the U.S. Core Equity Market ETF that we talked about earlier, right, ticker DFAU, that launched last November, and then with these conversions, I just mentioned there's two new U.S. equity ETFs, DFAC and DFUS. What are the key differences here? Because just, you know, on the surface, those all look pretty similar, sound pretty similar. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really good question because the, the differences are a bit nuanced. So like I mentioned earlier, we, we tilt these funds towards sources of higher expected return. Now, there is no right tilt 
towards the sources of higher expected return, though, right? It's it, That is an investor preference kind of thing. And so what we do is we say, hey, we are fantastic at, at managing assets. We want to provide a menu of options for our clients to be able to pick which option works best for their clients. So when you talk about DFUS versus DFAU versus DFAC, yes, they are all covering the broad U.S. Uh, asset class, but they have varying tilts towards those sources of higher expected returns. So DFUS has the lightest tilt, then DFAU has slightly more aggressive tilts, and DFAC has the most aggressive tilts uh, of the three. And so what you get with that is as you ramp up those tilts, you get a, an increase in expected returns for sure, but you also get a little bit higher uh, tracking error relative to an, an untilted benchmark. And we just provide that menu of options to our clients and they pick and choose which one they, they think works best. All right, Joe, we have a few minutes left here. In terms of DFA's longer term approach to the ETF market, I have to ask you this question because I guarantee you listeners are wondering, and that's it. DFA was historically only available through advisors, right? Advisors who went through certain training and were approved by DFA. And now with these ETFs available to everyone, I'm curious, what do you think that does to those advisors who sort of hung their hat on offering DFA products? You know, like advisors who sold that exclusivity. Do you think that's a concern at all? Yeah, you know, we haven't really heard much of that. I don't really think we work with too many advisors that that's their main main sales pitch anymore. Um, we don't plan to change the way that we work with advisors. Of course, anyone who wants to invest in these ETFs can invest in them. They don't they don't need to go through us, but we still think that we have a lot to offer to advisors. And and first off, like I mentioned, our advisors are asking us to launch these ETFs, so I think they're pretty happy that we're doing it. Secondly, what we offer to our advisors is practice management, building their businesses, networking, study groups, a whole bunch of things that we offer to them when they're willing to come and work with us that we think can help them build their businesses. And so uh, across that, that spectrum, I think it's, it's really still going to be a win-win. Now, we it's important to go back and, and uh, remember why we had that, that control on access to our funds. In a mutual fund structure, if we have hot money moving in and out of our funds, that's a bad thing for our investors. That can trigger uh, additional costs for, for long-term investors. Whereas with an ETF, we don't have to worry about that. When an investor wants to move in and out of an ETF, if it's hot money or it's long-term investors who really agree with our approach in, in long-term investing you know, that we have here at DFA, they can live side-by-side side in the same fund structure and not cause any ill effects uh, to the other, the other investor, right? If somebody wants to move in and out of an ETF quickly, that's perfectly fine. They're going to be paying the bid-ask spread that they see on markets, right? Whereas our investors who are staying in the fund and want to be long-term investors, there is no downside for them with those investors moving in and out of the fund. So this whole structure allows us to take some of those concerns that we've had previously with mutual funds and not have to worry about them anymore. And on this note, I mean, is there anything else you can tell us about DFA's future ETF plans? So I know there are two additional mutual funds that will be converted. I believe I saw in September. Um, I, I believe there are two bond ETFs on the horizon as well. Is that correct? Yeah, there are a few fixed income ETFs. I don't know the exact number if we've, we've settled on exactly what we're going to be doing, but we're hoping that those will be coming here relatively soon. We certainly have two international funds. And like I mentioned earlier, the, the first four were U.S. exposed. It's just easier to do things only in the U.S. And so 
um, the international funds are going to be coming along, but it just takes a little bit longer, especially in the, the COVID times we're living in. Things are just moving a little bit sl- more slowly, uh, one of which is a, a world ex-U.S. So we're, we're having to, to coordinate with 30-plus jurisdictions across the globe to be able to m- do this conversion. So we've got those two funds coming, uh, we expect, sometime in September. And after that, honestly, me as a portfolio manager, we built out the machinery to be able to launch lots or launch and manage lots of ETFs without having to change our resourcing very much. And so I hope and expect that we're, we're going to be doing a lot more in the future. We've always sat back and kind of waited for our clients to come to us and say, hey, I need this solution. I need this product. And that's always been a big impetus for us to, to launch new products. And so what I would say to our advisor clients out there or new advisors who want to start working with us, get in touch with us and tell us what you want. We are listening. We're always listening. Well, Joe, congratulations on all the success so far. To, to me, it's really exciting to see DFA now heavily involved with, with ETFs. Thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, happy to do it. Great talking with you, Nate. That was Joe Hone, Senior Portfolio Manager at Dimensional Fund Advisors. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Amanda Ribello, head of U.S. onshore passive sales at DWS Group, who's a global asset manager currently offering 35 ETFs in the U.S., about $22 billion in assets, and they oversee $160 billion in ETF assets globally. But their U.S. ETF lineup includes four China-focused ETFs, along with a suite of currency-hedged international ETFs. And we'll be discussing both of those this week. Amanda is now on the line with me from New York. Amanda, it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks very much for inviting me. Okay, so let's actually start with the currency-hedged lineup. Uh, This includes seven ETFs led by the X-Trackers MSCI EFA Hedged Equity ETF, ticker DBEF, which this is the second most popular X-Trackers ETF overall, right? Some $4 billion in assets. But what's interesting to me is I, I feel like this topic of currency hedging, this was the talk of the town back in 2014, 2015. But you look since that time, and it hasn't really resonated with investors. Now, I think clearly the dollar has been a big part of that because the dollar's mostly trended sideways since then. But can you, you just talk about the segment of the ETF market in terms of the, uh, the, the journey it's been on over the past 10 years or so since DBEF first launched? Yeah, so um, this is actually one of our oldest funds. Um, we celebrated the 10-year anniversary last week, in fact, of uh, DBEF, which is fantastic. And um, it's been quite a journey. So um, we still have it as like, you know, one of our flagship funds with the $4 billion in assets, like you said. But the high point, it was reaching something like $15 billion or so. Um, and this international 
dollar hedged exposure was really something that was answering the needs of a lot of clients um, and investors at the time. Um, I think it's still, you know, it's always continued to be of relevance to a number of um, different investors, maybe more so on a blended approach nowadays versus, you know, back in the day in, in kind of that, that 2013, 14, 15 um, period, it was starting to be like a full replacement product for uh, the international equities component in, in portfolios. Okay, and for investors who maybe aren't familiar with currency hedged ETFs, do you want to ex- explain how these ETFs work and, and, and how the foreign currencies are hedged? How does that work under mm-hmm. the hood? Yeah, definitely. So it's very transparent. Um, what the portfolio manager is doing of the ETF is, um, let's take the DBEF, the um, international, um, the EFA currency hedged exposure as an mm-hmm. example, just for illustration. So the portfolio manager, he you know, gets the recipe, he gets the index um, data and uh, constituents and weights from the index provider. He buys that basket of portfolio um, equities uh, across all of the different markets and he buys them aligned to the weights which are coming from the index. But the currency hedged information is also coming from the index provider as well. So there's no discretion um, from the portfolio manager in terms of the hedging component. That's also, you know, we, we could classify that as passive as well. Um, so what happens is that the index has hedging on a monthly basis, and there will be hedge ratios which are provided by the index provider on a monthly basis for each of the relevant currency pairs. And the um, portfolio manager basically just puts forwards on for each of those currency pairs in line with the with the ratios which have been provided by the index provider. Then you end up having, you know, the month of performance, and then we have the resetting again for the hedges. You were alluding to this earlier, but from a portfolio construction standpoint, let's talk about this decision to hedge or not, because I know some investors will argue, well, if you're hedging currencies, you're actually making two bets, right? You're making a bet on whatever the international stock market is you're investing in. And then you're also making a bet that the currency or currencies in those markets will fall as well, that they'll decline versus a dollar. And you have to be right on both. I'm curious, how do you view this decision? Yeah, so I think from um, our perspective as a house, even when we speak with our portfolio managers as well um, on the multi-asset side, thinking about the multi-asset portfolio, um, I think one thing uh, you think about is the return component, of course, but also the risk component as well. So um, if we just think about, you know, kind of some blended portfolios, um, if you were going to take, let's say, for example, an ETF, which was just tracking the EFA index, um, and let's say that 10 years ago, you put um, $100,000 into that ETF, then uh, today you would end up having something like $180,000. If you took a 50-50 approach, um, you had, you know, 50%, so 50000 in the EFA ETF and then 50000 in the EFA hedged ETF then you would end up with like around 210 odd um, thousand dollars. And if you took the fully hedged one, uh, then you would end up having around $230,000. So um, from that return perspective, you can already see that the argument is there. But then what's interesting as well is from the vol perspective, when you look at the annualized volatilities, the risk component, um, if you took the EFA ETF, the unhedged one, then your volatility for the last 10 years annualized would have been about 15.1%. If you took the blended one, you've brought it down. 
and it's come to around 14%. And then the fully hedged one ended up looking like around 13.6% annualized fall over the 10-year period. So for me, I think it's a little bit of an easy question (laughs) of um, higher returns, lower volatility. It's definitely something worth looking into. What about the argument that having exposure to foreign currencies adds some diversification to a portfolio. Any any thoughts on that line of thinking? Yeah, and I think it is a valid point. I mean, I think that in some circumstances, there is some uh, diversification, which is added from the currencies. And then, you know, when you look at the exposure, you know, thinking about how many pairs you're actually exposed to. But um, what you can... um, what you can see and when you look at the academic uh, research is actually the majority of the diversification driver is actually coming from um, the component of the equities themselves, you know, like the economic um, drivers of the equity prices rather than the fact that you happen to be in sterling or in euros or in Japanese yen. It's more about buying into the economies through the equities of the UK, of the eurozone, of Japan. All right, before we move on here, because I do want to briefly touch on China, what about the costs of currency hedging? Like like the actual cost of the hedges themselves? Is that a drag on Mm -hmm. return, something investors should be concerned about? Um, Definitely something I think that, you know, is worthwhile considering before making an investment decision. And it varies from market to market. So um, if we look at the roll costs um, over a one-month period annualized, so for EFA hedged into dollars, actually the cost is like pretty much zero basis points. Um, you know, this is a function ultimately of where rates are in the component markets. Um, if you look at um, emerging markets, though, you see rate differentials there, and you also see volatility in the currency pairs as well and how they trade. So then, um, from that perspective, the roll cost for um, May, for example, when we look at the last month, um, over the last month period, but annualized came out at about 5.07%. And then when you look at, you know, uh, an index which is um, blended of EM and DM, then you end up bringing that down. So based on the weight of EM and DM in the market, if we look at the ACQUI index, for example, hedged into dollars, then the roll cost was approximately 1.42% annualized for um, the last month. Okay. Uh, Amanda, with our remaining time, let's briefly turn to China. Uh, DWS offers four China ETFs. The flagship offering here is the X-Trackers Harvest CSI 300 China A shares ETF, ticker ASHR. This was actually the first ETF to own China A shares, also one of the most popular X-Trackers ETFs with nearly $3 billion. Now, DWS also offers a small cap version, ticker ASHS, and then there are two other ETFs, including a uh, broad China ETF, ticker CN. Just given the amount of time we have left here, um, I think what would be most interesting is, can you just talk about the case for owning China direct? Because I know a number of investors have exposure to China through broad-based emerging market ETFs. So why own something like ASHR? Yeah, I think um, a lot of a lot of points really. Um, we were talking about diversification earlier, and I think that diversification is a strong 
um, reason for holding China. When you look at uh, the IMF projections in terms of real GDP growth, um, what you see is that the expected uh, GDP growth for next year, 2022, you know, emerging out of the uh, global pandemic, still very strong, 5.6%. It doesn't really fall off that much in terms of the projections. So even by 2026, the expected GDP growth um, on real terms basis is still going to be 4.9%. And what we see is that... Um, China's the second largest economy in the world. It's growing at 2.6 times faster, forgive me, than um, the U.S. And this really puts it into context for me. Um, The economy is 12 times larger than it was in the year 2000. So I think strong diversification components there also has different trade partners versus the U.S., for example, um, and is diversifying even the um, economies and and revenue streams as well domestically and internationally. Um, When we think about owning China directly, um, you've kind of hinted at it, but one thing to think about is which exposure you're really taking. So there's a number of different share classes, we can call them, for um, China equity, so A shares, H shares, P chips, N shares, red chips, you name it. Um, But the A shares one is really the one that's giving the purest access to the domestic market. Before I let you go, um, I actually visited with an ETF issuer a few weeks ago who they offered an actively managed China ETF. And he made the argument that there's an opportunity to generate alpha in this segment of the market, the the A shares, because there are a lot of uh, amateur investors in China. So he had a stat that they account for something like 80 to 90 percent of onshore trading. Any thoughts on that and, and, and why you perhaps think indexing might be a better way to go here? I think um, both the indexed and the active um, arguments do have some strength. I think there are some very strong active managers in the space, um, but it, it's you can't just make a broad statement that you know all of the active managers are going to provide you with some alpha. There's so many nuances in the um, in the China market. A good case in point would be things like stock suspension. So, you know, their market dynamics work differently from like the New York Stock Exchange, for example. And I think that actually um, we are able to offer alpha, but in a kind of indirect way, so to speak, because um, we partner with Harvest. So Harvest is a Chinese asset manager. And because they're on the ground, because they've been managing Chinese equities for so long, they have a lot of opportunity for adding value effectively through execution and things like that, that maybe you might have an active manager based in the US, but they might not, you know, have all of these insights. So while they pick good stocks, they lose out on the transaction costs and everything. So I think I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Well, Amanda, really appreciate the time this week. Uh, Fantastic perspective. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for your time. That was Amanda Rabella, head of US onshore passive sales at DWS Group. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Jillian Del Senor, who's head of ETFs and indexing at FLX. This will be interesting. She's going to cover a, a number of topics, including how ETFs are bought and sold, And then Janice Henderson's Nick Cherney will spotlight their AAA CLO ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.